You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Steve. Good morning, River. Uh, let's open up a prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get together this morning. We thank you for the new year, uh, for visiting family and friends over the holiday, Lord. And we just thank you for a great Christmas, and we thank you for those who are healthy in our community, and we thank you for um, those who um, have uh, overcome to sickness, that they're just um, healing, Lord, and, and recuperating. Um, we know, Lord, that through you all things are possible. And Lord, we just ask that you're with us today as we go through the Bible, Lord, and we start our, our series on deacons today. Um, and Lord, we just ask that you love us and you give us your wisdom and your mercy. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> um, it seems like this morning is always a tough one because we just had New Year's Eve and a lot of people stayed up late to watch the ball drop and to celebrate with friends and family. And then you had one day to recuperate yesterday. And for some reason, this more this Sunday is always a little bit rough, especially when you just had the uh, New Year's Eve and you spent so much time with friends and family. Uh, but so I thank you, first off, just for everyone that being here and coming to fellowship and to be in the Word and prayer, Lord. Um, we're going to start today a new series. Um, Sean, Pastor Sean, talked a little bit about it in the video. Um, we are entering a season where we're going to be calling deacons, and to prep for that. Uh, we wanted to provide as much information to all of you as a church since you're going to be helping in that process. So the first sermon today is going to be around qualifications of a deacon. Um, so as you start prayerfully thinking about um, who in our um, church body might be someone that, that you might want to nominate for the deacon position, um, we want you to start thinking about qualifications. So we're going to look, open the Bible and look right at the qualifications that Paul talks about for deacons. Um, next week, we're going to do a sermon on the duties of a deacon. So not only do you qualifications biblically, but you know do, what the duties of a deacon are. Um, and then the third piece is going to be looking at examples of deacons. And so we're going to be looking specifically from Acts at Stephen and Philip. Um, so all of that, again, is to kind of prep for um, us to make a knowledgeable and um, godly choice based in the word on who could be deacons here at the church. Um, so we're going to start that off today. We're going to be opening up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 13 is what we're going to look at today. Um, I kind of thought, when I was creating this message, I kind of thought about what makes a deacon, right? Um, we hear about deacons in Acts. We hear about it here in 1 Timothy again. What makes a deacon? And Paul kind of lays it out for us. Um, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, Paul gives us a list of qualifications that a man needs to be a deacon. Um, it's right after the qualifications that Paul gives for a pastor. He gives us the qualifications that a man needs to be a pastor, and then he gives the ones for a deacon right here. And that's because these two offices of the church are linked. Um, they work together in ministry. They're not the same office. There is a difference, but they are linked together. Um, and you'll see as we read through the qualifications today that the qualifications for deacon are very similar to those that we saw when we called pastors um, with, with one main difference. Um, 
deacons are not asked to be teachers. That's a piece that falls on the pastors. Um, when we call deacons here, that's really the main difference we're going to see as well. Um, the pastors uh, fulfill more of a teaching and oversight of the church, whereas we're going to see the deacons um, help fulfill more of the servant aspect. Right? There's a lot of things, and we'll see that next week when Pastor Dan talks about duties and looks at acts. Um, but we'll see that you know the deacons were called to help the pastors care for the flock. And there's a lot of pieces that are needed when we look at that. Um, the other thing I want you to think about is, as we look at these qualifications today, you know, I don't want you to think, well, these are checklists just for the people that we're looking at for deacons. Um, as always, right, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all Scripture is breathed by God and it's profitable, right? It's profitable for teaching, it's profitable for reproof, it's profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. That way, the man of God or all of the people of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, right? So as we look at the qualifications for a deacon, I don't want you just to set that aside in your mind as this only, this is only pertains to the people we're looking at, right? But this is also a good watermark for ourselves. Where in our own spiritual walk with Christ are we compared to these qualifications as well? Now, some of them are very specific, um, and, and that's fine. And we'll talk, we're going to talk about two specifically that sometimes um, people have misunderstandings about or may have different, under, different interpretations of, and we're going to talk about that. But for the most part, this gives us a good watermark. If this is the qualifications we'd ask for someone in a church office, then again, it's probably a good list that we could use for our own life as well. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we, as we go through this. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13, through 13, and it's up here as well, says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So as we look at this list of qualifications, I kind of broke them up into three pieces. And I think the first section of qualifications that we see here that Paul lists for us and lists for Timothy is actions of a deacon. Verse 8 talks all about actions of a deacon, right? The way that a deacon should act. Um, the first thing that we see here is a deacon must be dignified. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to be dignified? Well, a deacon needs to be serious. They need to take things seriously. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't, can't have a sense of humor, right? A sense of humor is a great quality to have, but it means that they take the responsibility seriously. They take the responsibility to God seriously. They take their prayer life seriously. And there's someone that can be counted on for the responsibilities they've, also, they've already been given, but then also for further responsibility that they could be taking on as a deacon. So someone needs to be dignified in that aspect. Um, they need to be someone who lives godly character. Um, 
that's a good way to kind of start off. It sets, us, sets our bar a little bit high, but it says, you know, this is someone who takes things seriously and lives, tries to take their spiritual walk seriously as well. The next thing we see is that a deacon needs to not be double-tongued. Uh, double-tongued is kind of an older phrase that we see, but we do see it a few places. Um, it's also mentioned for pastors, but also we see it in James. As James tells us about how Christians should live out their daily walk with Christ, right? James tells us that we shouldn't be double-tongued as well, and he warns of uh, the, the things that we need to be aware of when we let our tongue get the best of us, or we let our tongue lead us like the rudder of a ship. Um, and that's kind of what this means here, right? A deacon should not be two-faced. A deacon should not be someone in our midst who is, you know, tells someone one thing and then turns around and tells somebody else a different thing. Or somebody who tells people what they think they want to hear. You have to be able to trust that a deacon is, that someone who's up for the deaconhood is going to be someone who can uh, think about questions, they can think about responsibilities, and they can answer truthfully, they can answer to the best of their knowledge of the Word of God, um, but they're not going to answer just because they think someone wants to hear a certain answer. They're not going to be a people pleaser through their speech. It uh, doesn't mean that they have to be, um, you know, uh, an old gnarly horse person that always, you know, uh, says the the worst thing ever, right? It doesn't mean that they have to be um, grizzled and they have to be gruff, right? But at the same time, you can say the truth and say it in love. And that's the kind of quality that we should be looking for in a deacon, as well as when we looked at pastors. Um, you need to be, we need to be putting the priority when we speak on God's word and not what we think people necessarily just want to hear. Um, and that's part of being not double-tongued. Also, they shouldn't be a gossip. right? When we think about men in our congregation who may be um, a good choice for this, we need to think about someone who doesn't spread gossip all over the place. Now, luckily, I'm going to be honest, we don't really have gossips in our, in our midst. We're very blessed at that. I, I can't, you know, I don't think of anyone off the top of my head where I'm like, oh, well, I wouldn't tell that person that. Right, we we have a pretty a pretty solid um, congregation when it comes to gossip. We've been blessed. Now I don't want to jinx it. And now you know, two weeks from now, all of a sudden there's rumors and gossip flying all over the place. But at the same time, it is something that we can be thankful for. Um, but we need to think about that too. It shouldn't be someone who's gossips or spreads rumors. And it needs to be someone who they we need to be confident that if they're told something in confidence, they're not going to repeat it. Um, the offices of the church, pastor and deacon, may be um, positions where confidential information about church members um, may come up, and we need to be uh, aware and we need to be quite confident in that person that they're not going to be someone who spreads that information, that they can have a good thought, they can have wisdom about that. So that's something we want to keep in mind when we talk about not being double-tongued. Um, you need to be able to depend on what this person says. Right? And again, this is all things that are great for us too. Right? We shouldn't just say, well, that's a deacon. I can be double-tongued all I want. Right? Um, if Paul's talking to Timothy and talking to us about these are qualifications of a church officer, then they should be something we aspire to as well. Um, also, not given to much wine. Right? This is one I'm going to talk about a little bit because it's, it tends to be one that's a little bit people have different thoughts on. Um, but 
when it says not given to much wine, the phrase here means someone who sits long with the cup. Right? Sits long with the cup and thus drinks to excess. We can see that Paul, even later in 1 Timothy, in chapter 5, addresses Timothy and tells him to take some wine for his stomach. Timothy has a stomach ail ailment, and he says, take a little wine for your stomach as a medicinal purposes. Now, they didn't have the same off, off, you know, medicines we have today. right? Paul, I'm sure, may have said, take some Pepto-Bismol for your stomach, Timothy. Right, if they had that opportunity, but they didn't at the time. He didn't, couldn't say, hey, take some Tums, I heard your stomach's bothering you. Right? At the time, wine often was a medicinal piece to an upset stomach or having stomach ailments. It helped to kind of settle those down. So when he tells, tells Timothy that, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about going out for a night on the town. Um, another thing to keep in mind when we talk about drinking and we talk about wine and alcohol, especially when it comes to church offices, um, is alcohol is one of those things that can get out of hand easily. And we need to keep that in mind as well. And that's why it comes into play, I think, when we're calling church officers. Um, you see, even in the early church, right, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul admonishes the Corinthian church because there are members who are getting drunk during the Lord's Supper off the wine. So they were taking something that was supposed to be um, an, in honor of our Lord Jesus and celebrating our Lord's sacrifice, and they were, getting, they were losing control and drinking too much wine and then getting drunk in the middle of Lord's Supper and the feast that followed. So we have to take these things into consideration as well. Um, it's also true that Jewish people diluted water with wine, or diluted wine with water. Um, I say water with wine because that's kind of what the purpose was. As much as the water dilutes the wine, not all their water was the best water, right? They didn't have the, filter, the filtration systems that we have nowadays. They didn't have, you know, Brita. They didn't have chlorination. They didn't have any of that stuff. And some of the wells they had were open wells, and it wasn't great water. So sometimes by mixing it with some wine, it actually made a little bit of a healthier and more palatable drink to have. Um, I say that because... Again, now looking at us today, we have about a hundred other options that you can get at the grocery store before we need to grab alcohol off the shelf. Right? We don't need wine to make our water palatable. Um, we've got, you know, Sunny D, juice, I mean, uh, Gatorade, water, like there's plenty of other things. And our water is much, much healthier than it was in the days that we're seeing Paul talking to Timothy here. Um, so again, we need to interpret this as we go. Um, I'm not saying, because I want to be clear here, I'm not saying biblically looking at this that Christians can't have a drink. I'm not saying Christians can't celebrate with champagne toast at a wedding. Christians can't have you know, a, a drink now and then. I'm not even saying members of River can't have a drink. But I think we also need to look when we're looking at a church office, and I think Paul was looking at this aspect as well. We need to look at the fact that we also may have people in our midst who have struggled with alcohol. We may have people who are younger Christians and are still learning how to walk with Jesus. And we don't want a miscommunication. I would hate to be a stumbling block for someone. right? Romans 14.21, Paul discusses this. He says, you know, that 
he talks about how it's not good to drink wine if it causes your brother to stumble. And I know as a pastor, I would hate to be having a beer at a barbecue and a young Christian sees that and says, oh, well, Pastor Steve was having a beer. It must be okay to drink. And they go out and then have beer in excess and it becomes a problem. Or it allows them to stumble over maybe they had a problem with alcohol in the past. And they go, oh, well, it must be okay still because I saw Pastor Steve doing it. It's not necessary in our culture today, as I saw. And so I think taking into consideration Romans 14.21 as well, I think a godly pastor and a godly deacon would want to be the best example. I think that they would not want to cause a weaker brother or a weaker sister to stumble in any way. So that's why we ask anyone who's a pastor or going to be a deacon here at River of Life to abstain from alcohol. All right, I'm not saying that this passage says you can never drink alcohol, but what I'm saying is in interpretation of it and in light of everything we just discussed, we're comfortable, Sean, myself, Dan, we've all done, made the agreement to abstain from alcohol as well because we wouldn't want that to be a stumbling block. And I think someone who's volunteering to be in a deacon position we're asking that they make that same decision because they would want to be the best example and they wouldn't want to cause anyone in our group or outside our group to stumble. Um, and it's the same not only for alcohol, but nicotine products, right? It's the same for legalized recreational drugs as well as obviously illegal drugs is not okay, right? That's not okay for anyone, but it's not okay, especially for, for, the, for the, uh, the officers of the church. Um, and so you'll see that, and when, when you guys leave today, we have all of these qualifications that we've come up with for a deacon on the, on the counter as you leave that you can grab a copy. But you'll see this as one of the qualifications as well as the scripture verses next to it to where we get it from. Um, and I know I took a little bit of time on that piece, but when we have a, when we have a piece of scripture where sometimes people interpret it differently, I want to make sure that it's clear and transparent why we interpret it the way we do. And that's why we look at, when we see should not be given the wine, we take it as the pastor and the deacon should abstain. Also, we finish up here in this section on actions of a deacon, where the deacon should not be greedy for dishonest gain. In helping with church function, in serving everyone here at the church, um, and in the business aspects of the church, the deacons may come into contact with money for the church, right? They may have to go buy something. They may have to help with a purchase. They may have to help with the tithes. There might be a number of aspects the deacons come into contact with. Outside of that, though, it's also something that the deacon must be a man who understands that the money that they have is because of God. The money we have, we have because of the opportunities God has given us the jobs that we have that God has placed in our path, right? The money we have is because of God individually as well as a church. And so a deacon should understand that, and because of that, they should be a good steward of not only their money individually and their family's money, but also a good steward of the church's money. And that's what Paul, I think, is talking about. And again, we run into something that's really applicable to all of us, right? Many of us need to learn to be good stewards, and we can always improve on that, um, and our own individual lives, as our families, and as well as the churches. <clears throat> so therefore, he should be a good steward of money. He should be trustworthy. 
And he should also, a deacon should also be someone who's an example through their own generous giving. Um, being an officer of the church, they should be someone who leads through example. They lead through example of giving. They lead through example of servanthood. Right? They lead through example of prayer. And this all kind of falls into it, but this leading by example definitely under greedy and not looking for dishonest gain. That not only falls for money as well, but also things like power. Right? You never want, and I always feel like, I always feel like sometimes the worst person for an office is someone who seems to want it too badly. <laughs> um, because they may not understand the responsibilities of that office or take them as seriously. And so when you're greedy for dishonest gain, that can mean not only money, but it can mean other things. Right? It means you may be someone who's greedy for power, greedy for um, attention, greedy for you know, um, everyone to like them, approval. So those are the things we need to think about as well. Um, and it moves us into the second group. The second group of qualifications that we see here in, for, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the life of a deacon. Verse 8, he talks about these are the actions. These are the way that a man that's going to be a deacon should act. And here's how the man's life should kind of look. This is how it should play out. The first piece that he mentions here is they must hold the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. I don't think that needs any more explanation. I think we could probably move on. <laughs> You're all like, what does that mean, Steve? A clear conscience, the mystery of the faith? What are you talking about? Um, he holds the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. It means that a deacon needs to be both spiritually mature and doctrinally sound. All right, a deacon needs to know their scripture. They need to know sound doctrine, and they need to be mature spiritually. And those are linked because we, we don't list here that a deacon needs to know everything. We're not expecting a deacon, just like our pastors, to be perfect. We don't expect a deacon, if you walk up to a deacon and say, hey, uh, what do you think of those two words that are on the eighth page of 2 Kings? Right? We don't expect a deacon to necessarily know that. Now a deacon could go, hold on a second, let me open my Bible and take a look. Right? Um, I wouldn't expect a pastor to know that either. We don't expect a pastor to have memorized the entire Bible word from word. But they can open it up and talk knowledgeably with good doctrine about a book in the Bible about a passage when they read it out loud and go, okay, this is what it's saying, yep, and then they can, they can give it, you know, discussion and an answer and an aspect. Um, but on top of that, we also see the spiritually mature piece. And where that comes in is a spiritually mature man knows when they don't know an answer. They don't answer just to see like, seem like they know everything. Right? Someone who's spiritually mature knows their strengths and they know their limits. And they're not afraid to say, you know what, I don't have the answer to that, but I can get you to someone who does. Or I can ask someone, or I can research it and get back to you. That shows spiritual maturity. And so we look for someone who has sound doctrine, um, who seeks God for themselves. That's part of spiritual maturity as well. Um, who seeks God's will for their family and for the church overall. Those are also aspects of spiritual maturity. Prayer is a big part of their life, is a big part of spiritual maturity, as well as sound doctrine. Um, 
Because of this, as you consider prayerfully the people who may be good deacons, right? I want you to keep in mind that simply because someone is popular or someone might be a successful business person doesn't necessarily mean that they're qualified to be a deacon, right? I want you to be able to separate being good at business in the outside world or just being popular from being a good deacon. We really want to focus on these qualifications that have been listed in the Bible. The next piece we have in the deacon, life of a deacon is that a deacon has been tested and proved. Upon formal examination, their life and ministry is proven to be blameless. Again, doesn't mean perfect, but blameless means that if somebody else heard that John Smith was going to be a deacon at River of Life, they wouldn't go, oh my gosh, John Smith. Right? People should not be surprised that this person is going to be a deacon at River of Life. Um, that's what blameless means. They, haven't, they don't have aspects of their life where people can point and go, they definitely shouldn't be there. Right? That's what we look at when we're looking for blameless, is they should live their life in a godly manner in all the areas of their life. Um, not only do we look at this, but we're also looking at, we have a deacon selection committee to kind of fall into this piece of tested and proved. The deacon selection committee, which will be taking the nominations that you all give and then going through them, the deacon selection committee is made up of two pastors. That's myself and Pastor Dan. Um, it's made up of the personnel team chair, and then it's made up of two other people from the church body that are selected by the pastors. Um, so five people are going to review each of these nominees. They're going to look at the qualifications that are set upon from the Bible here. They're going to measure each person against those qualifications. They're going to interview them and their wife. And then decide through that by testing and measuring it against what the Bible says a deacon should be if they're people who are qualified to serve here at River. Um, it, it's good to have people who are tested and measured. Um, why do I say that? Well, I feel it always weakens the testimony of the church when you have someone who's not been proven taken office at the church. Not only can it weaken the testimony of the church, but it also sets, it might set that person up for failure if maybe they're not prepared to be in that position. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to put someone in a position where they may not be able to uphold the responsibilities and the duties for the church themselves, but also for that person. It's not a loving thing to do, right? We want to support people and we want to build people up. We don't want to put them in positions that are going to be bad for them or going to hinder them or possibly be stumbling blocks in their own spiritual life. And so this tested and proved part kind of falls into that. And that's why we have the selection team. It's why we have the interview process. It's why we go through that. And then finally, you as well. When the selection committee comes to you as a whole church and says, here are the people we felt met all these qualifications, now through your own prayer and your own discernment of the qualifications and knowing these people and what we've put in front of you, now you're testing and proving by your votes. And that's kind of how we do things together here. It also gets into the life of a deacon as having a godly home. And this is kind of a three-piece part that it mentions here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. 
Verses 11 and 12 discuss three aspects of this deacon's household. Their wife should be a woman of dignity. Well, we talked a little bit earlier about what that means. They should be someone who's serious, who take their responsibilities serious. Um, they shouldn't be a slanderer. So a deacon's wife as well should not be a gossip or part of the rumor mill. Right, so we should look at that too. While a deacon's wife is not serving in the office, much like a pastor's wife, we're very, we're very particular here at River that pastor's wives are not free unpaid labor. Right? You don't get the pastor's wife as a free other person to the pastor. Um, it's the same with deacons, but at the same time, when I was, went through the pastoral process, my wife Megan had to be interviewed as well because part of the home, right, we want to see someone as a church officer who runs their home in a godly way as well as their wife helps to run their home in a godly way so that they can help run the church in the same manner. So we want to look at a deacon's wife as well. Um, she shouldn't be a gossip or someone who spreads rumors. Um, should be someone who's clear-headed, right? The wife of a deacon should be someone who makes pretty good decisions, right? Um, someone who maybe you've talked to before and you go, hey, that's a real good, good head on their shoulders, right? I know I can always get good advice or good input from going to this person, right? That's the kind of wife of a deacon that we're looking for as well. Deacons must manage their children and households well. What do we mean by that? Well, it means that a deacon, like we mentioned a little bit earlier with budgets and things, but a deacon should manage their household budget well with their wife, but also they should manage their entire household, right? Their children. They should have their children relatively under control. Now, we know, everyone knows children are never 100% under control because they're like little gremlins sometimes, right? Especially the younger they are. But at the same time, right, they want to, a deacon is a man who's always trying to lead his family in a biblical way. He, he relies on the Bible, he relies on God's path, and he tries to extend that vision to his family, to his children, to his wife, and tries to live by what the Bible tells us in a godly manner. Um, and so that's something that we take into consideration as well. The third piece that it gets into here, and I want to make, make sure that when we say leads their home in a godly way. Again, it doesn't mean they're perfect, right? None of us are perfect except for Jesus, right? And if Jesus were up for to be a deacon, he's got it, okay? He could have my spot because he's much more qualified than any of us, right? But it doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it means that they're always aspiring to lead their home in a godly way, to bring their children up in a godly manner. And a deacon like a past, this is one of the aspects where we see, again, deacons and pastors being very similar in qualifications. A deacon like a pastor says it needs to be the husband of one wife. Um, a deacon needs to be someone who's not been divorced. This is the other piece. I told you there's two pieces I'm going to dive into a little bit more. I talked about the alcohol piece. I'm going to talk about this piece as well because there's interpretation here. Um, there's, there's been people who interpret it a little differently, and I want to explain why we interpret the way we do. Um, some people read, may read it a little differently. There's two main interpretations or two ways you can read this, not only from my own seminary classes, but the English teacher in me looks at this and says, okay, how can we, how can we read these words? There's two understandings. It's either someone who has not been divorced or by having one wife, 
or it's someone who is not a polygamist, meaning someone who doesn't have many wives. And now understanding those two pieces, when we look to teach the Bible, we, do the, we teach the Bible through three sections, observation, interpretation, application. So when we interpret this, we have to look at that, right? Well, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to be spread out and to be shared with others, God inspired Paul to write this. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. So when God wrote these words through Paul, there was four main target audiences here, four cultures that dominated. The first were the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews. Those were the predominant cultures of the area and of all the areas that the churches were in. And the fourth culture is us, because as we know, all of God's word pertains to us today as well. So when we look at those target audiences, we have to keep in mind how they would have perceived this. Well, the Romans and the Greeks were monogamous. It's actually one of the things, that was, and when we look at ancient cultures, one of the things that makes the Romans and Greeks stand out from other ancient cultures is they were monogamous. In fact, in Roman law, it was against the law for a Roman citizen to have more than one wife or one husband. They could actually be penalized by the law for that. So any Romans that are hearing this, they're all monogamous. So polygamy wouldn't have been an application to them. The Greeks as well. Now the Jews, we look at the Jews and the ancient Hebrews that we see in the very Old Testament, we know some of them had more than one wife. But historically, the Jews had stopped that practice. Um, as early as the Babylonian exile, the Jews were monogamous as well. By religious, by cultural, by tradition. So for 600 years before Paul wrote this, the Jews have all been monogamous as well. You can't be married to more than one husband or one wife. So now the fourth piece is us. Well, we are in a monogamous society. Um, no one here has more than one husband or one wife. Um, not only in the United States, in our society, but as Christians. right? Again, keep in mind that when Paul writes this, not only does he write it to these people, he's writing it to us, but he's writing it to churches and saying, when you raise up pastors and when you raise up deacons, this is what you should think about. So it's raising the people up out of their church. Well, if I said to you today, keep in mind when you're thinking about who you're going to nominate, it can't be anybody in our church that has more than one wife. You'd be like, what is wrong with you, Steve? What do you mean more than one? Nobody has more than one wife. If they were polygamous, they wouldn't be part of our church. Right? That would have been just as silly saying to the people of the time. Because anyone who was Roman or Greek, which was a large geographical area, we know that the New Testament's written in Greek, right? Or the Jews that were being taught, you know, the Jews that had converted to Christianity and that were being taught this in synagogues or churches, all of them would have been in groups where you were only married to one husband or wife. So none of them would have taken this as it's a polygamy thing, because that would have seemed completely out there. So it unfortunately, it leads us with the other aspect, which is divorce, which does pertain because we know Jesus touches on divorce. It comes up as a question for him. It was an issue in, Jew in Judaism at the time. We know 
um, that it was also an issue in Roman society at the time. A number of Ro Roman philosophers and historians who were contemporaries of Paul, Seneca being the main one, who lived at the exact same time Paul did, wrote a number of papers on how the Romans had a huge issue with divorce at the time. There were actually some women who didn't list their life by their age. Like when someone said, well, how, how old are you? They didn't say, oh, I'm 55. They'd say, well, I've only had two husbands because divorce had been such an issue at the time. So when I bring this up, I'm not saying it to attack any of our brothers and sisters who've been divorced. We have a lot of people, we have people in our families, we have people in our church that have gone through divorce, you know, and not always of their own accord. Um, there are a lot of ministries in our church for people who have been divorced and are remarried now. Um, but, we're, but when I look at the Bible and we look at this breakdown, it's, I think that the interpretation here is that pastor and deacon is not, is not one of them. Those two are, by Paul and God writing through Paul, listing it as this needs to be someone who's been married to one wife and has been faithful to that wife. Again, I only break it down because I want to explain the interpretation. I think that's the best way to do it in the best loving manner so that we all understand kind of where Dan and Sean, Dan, Sean, and myself all read it in that aspect. So that brings us to the last piece. Point three, the last section, is servanthood of a deacon. We've seen what should the actions of a deacon look like, what should the life of a deacon look like, and now what should the servanthood of a deacon look like? For those who serve well as deacon, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. That's what the last verse says. The word deacon in Greek means servant, man in waiting, not slave. <laughs> That's a different word, but it means someone who serves people. So we have to take that into consideration. A deacon, I don't want to get too far into what the duties of a deacon are, because Dan's going to talk about those next week. But a deacon must be a man who doesn't just fill the office, it needs to be a man who fulfills the office. All right, so they don't just show up and go, yep, I'm a deacon, check it on the box. It needs to be someone who honestly puts in the effort, understands the responsibility, and goes above and beyond to want to have a heart to serve other people. Want to have a heart to support the pastors, to help lead by example, to serve themselves to serve their families, to serve the rest of the church body, to serve other people in ministry. That needs to be the heart that's at the basis of someone who's, who might be a good deacon. Many leaders in the Bible were servants first, and that's why this is such a great position. Right? Servanthood helps prepare men for leadership. Um, Joseph was a servant in Egypt for 13 years before he became the second ruler. Moses cared for sheep for 40 years before God called him. Joshua was Moses' servant before becoming his successor. David was tending his father's sheep when Samuel anointed him to be the next king. And even our Lord Jesus was a servant and a carpenter before starting his ministry. 
right? Servanthood is not something to be shamed of. We see Jesus with a washing of feet. It's something to take, it's something to aspire to. It's something to ask God to put on your heart to want to help serve the people around you. And that's something we need to look for in a deacon. And why I bring it up is because as the next few weeks, as you pray and think about the people in our church who may meet these qualifications, I want you to take into consideration as well that think of the men who are already doing these things. Next week, when, when Pastor Dan talks about the duties, or yeah, the duties of a deacon, I don't want you to think of someone who'd be good to start tomorrow. Because if this is something that's on someone's heart already, they should be doing these things already. They don't need to be the office of to do these things, right? Think about the people who move chairs. Think about the people who put up tables and take down tables. Think about the people who shovel the walks. The people who are here to sometimes unlock the door or turn the lights on. Right? The people who serve in other ministries already. Because if someone really has a heart to serve, they don't wait around for someone to say, okay, you're a deacon now, start serving. It's already in their heart, and they should already be serving. They can't stop them from serving. So they're already being a servant to people in some way. So that can also be something that's on your radar as you're thinking and praying about the people here. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for... Lord, we thank you for providing so many people at River that we have a need for deacons. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to call deacons. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the men that we know we have in this, this church body who are qualified, Lord, and who could help to serve the people of the church. Um, Lord, we ask for your wisdom and in the coming weeks as we all think about the best people to fill those spots. And Lord, we just ask that you're with our families, our friends, the community um, as a whole, as there's some people who are, are sick, Lord, with various things. And we, we just thank you, Lord. We love you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.